Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Thanks to the Betsy Stockton Center, uh, as well as the Center for Asian American Christianity, both at PTS, which has long uh, led in significant ways in the in, in the freedom struggle that we're all trying to kind of find our way uh, forward in. So uh, what I'm going to try to do today is talk a bit about solidarity. And I'll just preface it by saying it is um, maybe the most difficult topic, uh, certainly to me, the most personally painful part of this journey. Uh, and it's led by the conviction that if you think about things um, on race and racism, that solidarity uh, is not simply a byproduct or an outcome of the revolution of liberation. Uh, it is the very instantiation of it. And so uh, that is, this is supposed to be hard, um, or it is, it is hard. So so many of you know, unfortunately, I'm sure uh, that um, I've been on this long book tour for this recent book of mine, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. And, and what happens on book tours uh, uh, is that, you know, you, you have to answer for the book. And in, in my case, uh, that means you have to come and fall out the lines of conversation and argument that you've made in a book, and you have to follow them to their conclusions. And with book tours, I found at least you go increasingly further out on the limb that you created for yourself. Uh, and sometimes that limb breaks, you fall down and you fall down on your butt and you know you try to climb back up. Uh, but also what you do is if the limb holds, then you risk further out on the limb. You think out further conclusions from say premises of an argument. Uh, and that's what I'm gonna try to do today in terms of thinking about um, questions of solidarity. Um, I, I will say that these questions, it's very hard for these questions to um, play out without significant costs and consequences, um, uh, say costs of one's convictions. The costs, I think, for a book like mine um, is the, in terms of questions of solidarity, uh, and I just will be upfront about this because I think it's important to be honest, um, the cost is if you push a racial capitalist account of race and racism, if you think that the driver is a larger political economy of domination and exploitation, um, then that will seem to some folks like you're diminishing the power of anti-Blackness. Um, and whereas I think I'm trying to think through what anti-Blackness entails um, for certainly for African-American folks, but for all of us as we live in this world, um, and then this, the second consequence or challenge for a project like mine is insofar as I raise significant questions about the uh, adequacy of racial identity as a point of analysis and a point of political organizing, then it can't help but look like you're challenging primary ways in which people have life in this world. And so I will say I felt those, those consequences throughout and I've I feel like I've faced some pretty dear consequences for them. Um, but to kind of think through the implications is to kind of go further out in this limb. I was nervous about giving this talk until I heard my colleagues speak yesterday and uh, a serendipitous conversation with Dr. Uh, Julius Krupp, who's speaking later today. 
uh, maybe gave me some um, spirit-laced liquid courage. Uh, but also, I want to say that I think uh, if you think about the work of, say, um, Haypin M over the, over the course of her career, very much on the front lines um, in places of challenge and risk, um, I just think she's a, a profound inspiration to me and a lot of people. So, so that's just to say, I'm going to blame Julius and Haypin for everything I'm about to say. And so if you take issue with it, you know, please take issue with them in the Q&A. So um, what I've begun to start thinking is that uh, we need two theologies of anti-racism. Um, that is, when I think about the question of solidarity, just how challenging it is, we're going to need two theologies of anti-racism, or at least two conjoined parts of a single theology. So the first theology is the one I espouse that many of you know, that a theology of revolution begins with an ontological description of the world, that justice and mercy are natural to the world because they are natural to God. And so revolution and liberation are part of the deep economy built into creation. Uh, what this means then is that the proclamation that comes out of worshiping communities, uh, then proclamation is the primary political key uh, of Christian anti-racism, um, that really what we are doing is leaning into a political economy of liberation built into God's very own life. Um, uh, and so, as I say, you know, we're not then waiting for a revolution to start. We're leaning into one already 2,000 years old. Um, and so that would be a theology of re revolution. It would, it would be a, a metaphysical picture of our lives in the world in the midst of struggle uh, that suggests that even though we feel like we're on the underside of history, uh, we are on the right side of God's liberation, uh, as celebrated, say, in the Easter season, where the resurrection cosmically affirms um, the ministry career of Jesus as pushing forth liberation through justice and mercy. Um, so that would be a theology of revolution. Uh, but I've begun to wonder uh, whether that is not quite sufficient. Um, or that that picture of revolution needs to com be combined with the theology of waiting. And, 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 I don't, and please let me be clear, I don't mean by waiting a passivity, uh, like we're not doing anything, we're just sitting around on our butts. I mean a waiting in the midst of action, that while we can be faithful in pursuing liberation, that there also needs to be an attending sensibility um, that revolution often stalls. Um, even one that is built into God's life as the fate of creation, um, that it often stalls. And then we need to know how to think about that. And if you don't have both uh, a, a theology of revolution built into the order of things, but also a theology of waiting, say active waiting, um, then you won't be able to make sense of, of just how difficult the struggle is, which should be um, clear to us insofar as we understand what we're struggling against. A theology of waiting would do two things primarily. Uh, it would identify what is happening when things get tough and why it is happening. And then it would identify um, the temptations that arise in those moments, the challenges that we confront, uh, and then identify also the ways that we might resist and continue to proclaim in the face of them. I would say that this theology of waiting is, say, maybe the spiritual backside of the theology of revolution and that we need both. So let me kind of describe why waiting, um, a theology of waiting is necessary. Um, 
and this goes to a question of how I understand race and racism. So to understand why a theology of waiting is necessary is to understand the central role that solidarity plays in a racial capitalist approach that understands race and racism in terms of political economy. Or as I said in the beginning, why solidarity is not a bonus um, or simply one among many outcomes of revolution, but in very, in very serious sense, a very ex the very expression of it. Uh, so to understand the significant role that solidarity plays in this picture, and therefore why we need a theology of waiting uh, while we wait for it to happen, for, as we wait for it to materialize, we first need to understand what racial capitalism is, right? And so racial capitalism is the ideological justification for a world of extraordinary domination and exploitation. Um, it is racial capitalism helps us understand that race uh, was invented and deployed and used as a ruse at, for this justification and domination. It is the ultimate gaslighting move to blame onto those who suffer domination and exploitation, to blame them for the domination and exploitation that they suffer. Uh, and they suffer daily and they suffer persistently. It is to say to them, it is not because our society is unjust, it's because of you. It's something natural to who you are, it's your race. And so racism in this picture is a justification. It is, it is the lending of a, of a veneer of respectability uh, onto a world that is obviously um, and grossly, uh, extraordinarily violently uh, and inhumanely unjust. Um, that's what racism does in this world. Uh, as I often say, racism is what racism does and what racism does is it works. Uh, enables and holds together our world. Um, in this light, we will then remember, come to discover that race is not about difference. Uh, it's not about diversity. Uh, race was created for di differentiation and stratification. It is the differentiation and stratification necessary for labor and property distinctions to hold forth. Uh, and we see this time and time again in our history. Uh, the differentiation between whites and non-whites, even in white Europe, um, for the sake of certain and specific kinds of labor distinctions. The creation of white as a category in the colonial Americas um, as a creation and a ruse to further the aims of enslavement, property relations, and colonization, and thievery of land and peoplehood. Um, we see this also, as Du Bois reminds us, among race is again a deployment of a ruse to separate out, say, poor white folks and poor black folks in Reconstruction. We see it again as the use of a category of, say, Chinese South Asian laborers in the late colonial American period, again, to justify systems of domination exploitation, largely around worker, uh, worker visas, um, or simply migrant labor, um, contracted migrant labor. And then we see it consistently for the last hundreds of years in terms of how the Americas have been imagined and how borders have been imagined. Consistently, you see race as this fictive ruse to justify these things. It is the gaslighting blaming of the victims for these, this society. If this is the case, if this is what racial capitalism is and what racial capitalism is, is what it does is that use, it uses race to do these things. 
right? Then revolution begins at the moment in which um, those who are exploited refuse the ruse. They begin to recognize that the ruse is a ruse and its divide and conquer strategy is built in. Notice the distinctions I, I previously named. The idea was a divide and conquer strategy among different types of Europeans, divide and conquer strategy among different types of laborers, divide and conquer strategy among poor whites and poor blacks, divide and conquer strategy among Chinese migrant laborers and oppressed white laborers and oppressed and enslaved African-American laborers who've been made property and the exploitation and division among, say, nativist sensibilities and Latinx communities, including those who are holed up in prisons at the southern border to this day. And so what you see is race is created and it does work. It enables the society. It justifies what are otherwise obviously monstrous realities. That is the divisions that occur between us are not accidents of this political economy. It is what this political economy amounts to. If all that is the case, then revolution begins at the moment when those who are exploited refuse the terms of the ruse. They refuse the terms of racialization meant for diversification, I mean, meant for differentiation and stratification. As long as we hold to the lines of the political economy that is meant to divide us, then in some sense, we further this political economy. That's what I mean by in my account and the account of racial capitalism put forward by the black radical tradition, right? Coalition and solidarity is not a, say one among many outcomes or a byproduct um, of revolution. It is the very means by, by which revolution gets off the ground. This was something that Noel Ignatius, the socialist organizer saw early, uh, why he wrote the book, um, how the how the Irish became white. It was to try to remind his white um, factory steel workers, his co-factory steel workers, that the racial chauvinism, the white supremacy that they subscribed to, was a ruse that they had been taught to believe, so that they would not unite with other factory workers who happened to be people of color. He said that the built-in anti-blackness to a lot of white supremacist culture among the lower class was meant, it was intended. And until they refused to, they refused those terms of white chauvinism, white supremacy, then in a sense, they would be locked into their own oppression. We know that one of the powers of President Trump's um, presidency, his candidacy was precisely to weaponize this sensibility rather than to step in to name what is important about liberation among the white underclass, Trump deviously figured out how to weaponize it for his own political gain. One of the things Ignatiev mentions at the end of his life in a tragic turn of events is that rather than white nationality and the ruse of it and the ruse of its deployment within white supremacy, rather than recognize that among the oppressed white underclasses, the politics of identity have furthered it further instantiated it, further said to white people, the most important thing about who you are as a person is that you're white and white is all you will ever be. And so he was terrorized at the end of his life how his book had been turned against its own very goals and ambitions.
rather than to remind people, uh, white people, that there are other possibilities for their life. It was to lock them into the possibilities that racial capitalism had given to them. Um, and clearly this has played out in the Trump presidency. Um, we can also see this, all this, right? And, and when I get to, as I'm trying to get to this question of why we need this politics, um, this theology of waiting and why solidarity is really hard, we can also see this in the LA riots and how we talk about the LA riots, um, both in the happening of the LA riots and then in the long legacy over three decades of how we have tended to think about the LA riots. From a racial capitalist political economic approach, what the LA riots can be th thought about is something I describe as a racial capitalist aftermarket. Uh, and we could think of the killing of Latasha Harlins by Soon Jadu, right, as the articulation of just how brutal a racial capital, a society built on racial capitalist aftermarkets becomes. That again, these are not accidents, the faded realities of this political economy. What a racial capitalist aftermarket is, is the articulation of how racial capitalism works out, especially how it's worked out, say, in the last 50 years. The racial capitalism, as we know it, comes downstream to an entire political economy in which capitalism emerged, not, say, subsequent or after chattel slavery or not subsequent or after uh, the genocidal dispossession of lands of natives that rather capitalism emerges in these very forms. These are co-emergent principles in the Western and Northern world. Um, and so what capitalism is, is it produces these realities. And again, it uses race to justify them. What happens in the post 1960s after the freedom struggles along lines of gender, race, internationalisms, what we see is an extraordinarily powerful backlash in the form of a Thatcherite, Reaganite, neoliberal capitalism that begins to say, if we're going to try to survive eventualities like freedom struggles, if we're going to try to hold on to the world that we forcibly have put together over hundreds of years, then we're going to need, need to double down on that economy. And this is exactly what happens in the 1980s. It's not simply the taking away of social welfare or the taking away of unions or collectivization, uh, not only right the growth of car the carceral state or the evisceration of rural communities, including the farming, uh, local farms owned by companies rather than massive corporations, right? It's not simply the incredible spread of globalization over the entire world and the way that these are built into guarantees in the American neo neoliberal political mindset in the banking industry. Right, but it comes out in very particular kinds of things. And so when you think about South LA, right, in the midst of the LA riots, what you had is these food deserts. And these food deserts operated on the principle of exploitation begetting exploitation. That is the exploitation of American chattel slavery and its Jim Crow afterlife results in extraordinary inequality, an incredible maldistribution of allocation and of access. So what you don't have in a lot of communities in both rural and urban communities is the basic infrastructures needed for life. And we're talking about education, employment, access to healthcare, financial markets that are sustainable and committed to local communities. You don't have any of this. This then sets up the opportunity for others to exploit it. 
That's the nature of an aftermarket. It's exploitation in the background, unaddressed, leads to inequality, which then invites further exploitation. Who exploits that, in some sense, becomes less of a question than structure set up for exploitation. The other reality you have around the around 1980s and 1990s in Los Angeles is the growth of an extraordinary amount of immigration that follows Hart Seller in 1965 and the 1960s opening up of a global capitalist market um, that then is tied in a direct way in the 50s and 60s to an imperial militarism, right? This is something the Reverend uh, Dr. King recognized very clearly at the end of his life, the deep tie between capitalism and imperialism, right? And it's ongoing war against the poor are interlaced racial realities. Um, and so to get to what you need to build up this neoliberal economy, this racial capitalism, then is a system that is set up, it is ripe for exploitation. Again, where the question of who does the exploiting in some ways becomes secondary to the structure set up for exploitation. And of course, this is all locked into a law and order property regime. You can look at um, Break Every Yoke by our colleagues, uh, Josh, Josh Dubler and Vincent Lloyd, where we see the turn at the very same time of a carceral and police state. The primary point of which is to uphold and protect pr proprietary regimes. If this is all true, right, if these global massive structures are coming into place, then what happens in that store between Latasha Harlins and Sunja Du is part of a larger structure that made, in some sense, her tragic death inevitable. And as I believe, will continue to make things inevitable like that, as we've seen in the decades since this time. Now, the easy move here is to demonize Soon Ja Du, just like the easy move is to demonize Korean business owners, just like the easy move is to scapegoat the police. Each surely have their forms of complicity. Each surely participate in forms of exploitation. Each play active agency field roles where they bear moral responsibility but it is way too easy and convenient and virtue signaling for us to blame them while we are the beneficiaries of the system that they are simply participants in. It is way too easy to blame them, to scapegoat them, to wish ill on them, to think badly about them. When we're the ones in how, where we educate our children, get access or hoard access to healthcare, when we think about in, in our own nativist sensibilities, even as people of color, even as migrants, it's way too easy to blame them and to virtue signal our way into continuing this very same political economy. That's why we need to think bigger and more courageously and more honestly about the lives we live in um, and the ways that they lead to the destruction of people in ongoing ways. So then how do we think about solidarity if this description of political economy and racial capitalism is somewhat even in the vicinity of being accurate? And this picture of political economy then again has been pushed forward by the black radical tradition for over 150 years. 
One way to think about it is taken up by, in, in what I describe as a brilliant article by UC Irvine's Jared Sexton uh, of the of Afro-pessimist fame. His essay, Properties of Coalitions, Blacks, Asians, Politics of Policing. Both in my mind, art offers a script of how we're supposed to think about solidarity but the nature of that script and the power of its rhetoric in some ways epitomizes the very problem presented in front of us. So if I'm saying that racial capitalism builds in division and conquer initiatives into its very operations and that liberation and revolution begins when we refuse that divide and conquer initiative and strategy, then in some sense what Sexton gives us is very, the very reasons to be fearful of the solidarity to run in a different direction. Again, the argument is astute. It is sharp. In some ways, it is brilliant. So let me lay it out. In the argument, what Sexton argues is that Asian American calls, especially he and his context is especially the LA riots. In the context of the LA riots, the call on the part of Asian Americans and specifically Korean Americans um, towards solidarity toward coalition is disingenuous at best because the immediate call to solidarity and coalition is like the cheap Christian move towards reconciliation without reparation, right? What is Sexton's argument? It is this, that the quick move to solidarity, hey, that is, let's just all get along, without acknowledging the complicity of creating business owners in participating in exploitative markets, even if they're part of a larger system, as I tried to describe, where we don't want to scapegoat them, but the unwillingness to acknowledge any complicity is then in disingenuous at best and more likely a political ploy to cover over that complicity. And if that is the case, than simply to continue the lines of inequality and exploitation and domination. Um, and so what, and all of this for Sexton operates out of what he calls, what Afro-pessimist folks call as an ontological framing of anti-Blackness, right? So in my account, anti-Blackness is an outcome of a political economy that uses anti-Blackness. For Sexton, anti-Blackness is the whole thing. Right. And so in some sense, they're mutually opposed uh, descriptions of the world, and therefore they have mutually opposed descriptions of what solidarity comes to. In Sexton's account, there really is no possibility for solidarity unless the solidarity is built around the foundation that we believe that all things reduce to anti-Blackness. Again, it's a powerful rhetorical description. Now, ways in which people have tried to respond to arguments like Sexton has been things like moves within Asian American theory against things like the model minority myth, right? And to say something like, well, the model minority myth is in fact a myth to disaggregate the data to show that in fact, Asian Americans vis-a-vis -vis Cambodians and the Hmong suffer as well disproportionate inequalities. Uh, but there are also, and, and, and I think there's undoubtedly value and use in this theory, in, in this theorization and its empirical, its use of the empirical evidence. But at the same time, as I said earlier, that there's a part of that kind of move that kind of misses something important to the basic eye test of the persistence of anti-Blackness. 
um, that in the same way that we want to disaggregate, say, Asian Americans within the various groups that comprise Asian Americans to show the absurdity of the category altogether, just like we want to disaggregate how race um, works out materially by disaggregating African Americans by class and social by socioeconomic class, it's also really important to hold on to things that authors and sociologists like Arthur Sakamoto show that is consistently true about the persistence of anti-Blackness and the ways that Asian Americans are in some ways able to resist the capture of racial capitalism in these kinds of ways. Um, I would balance that by saying Matt Brunig and the people over at the People's Policy Project have also shown the ways that maybe the best way to think about the racial wealth gap isn't really to think about it only in terms of racial wealth gap, but the wealth gap in general. So I want to say that these are all kinds of things in the complexity of this argument. And, and I want us to step into the complexity, not fear it, because th there's two easy answers, uh, two convenient ways of approaching it, but we want to step into the complexity. But the main thing I want to say about the model minority myth, right, is that if our point of trying to challenge the model minority myth is to show its inaccuracy, we seem to miss what it is doing. The myth is not a good faith attempt to accurately describe people. The myth is the structured result of divide and conquer. In other words, the model minority myth and its bifurcation and it's setting people against each other, what Russell described as its wedging effect in power, is not an accident of the myth. That's the entire point of the myth. Even if William Peterson never wrote that article that came up with the model minority myth, someone else would have, because we have to think in these terms within the terms of racial capitalism, which is a zero-sum analysis. We're always going to think over and against each other in zero-sum terms, because that's what racial capitalism is. That's what a cap, uh, that is what a political economy based on competition and finitude and stratification and differentiation amounts to, right? And so that's what we wanna get our mind around. It's not various revolutions of how accurate the myth is. We wanna understand the structural role of the myth and how they, that the myth and the white black binary work in tandem of each other, with each other within this larger stratification. Okay, so that's all complex. Um, and how we think about the myth, I think lays bare how difficult this question of solidarity is. But in some ways, the difficulty of solidarity for almost the exact same reasons plays out much closer to home. And by home, I mean our theological and religious and Christian context, our everyday lives with neighbors and coworkers and family, but also in spaces of you know, academic spaces like this one. And the way you could think about how hard solidarity is, is think about the particular scripts we, we tend to feel in some sense um, like we have to commit to, that we have to perform, right? And you can almost see these performances consistently at conferences like this, where the idea is an interracial conversation about some material state of affairs, say the LA riots. And the goal is to kind of get honest with one another so that we can make some steps forward. And the question why, that while some steps are sometimes made, ultimately what all of us really are doing is simply performing a script, particularly meant to not really move us forward. Right. And, and so at conferences like this, what you often see is Asian Americans like me uh, and like me are really deferential, 
right to our black brothers and sisters that like that that's the only script we can imagine um we do, it's hard for us to try to name right and, and that difference is naming our complicity like i have uh, and there's something obviously right about that but is that the only script available to us right to think that that's the only script available is to think about say um, the terror of the images of, say, African-Americans doing violence to Asian-Americans in the last two years of the anti-AAPI uh, del deluge of violence that Russell and his colleagues have documented. Now, to be clear, the vast majority of those instances are perpetuated by white folks. But there are at least a few instances, right? There are at least a few instances where the perpetrators were black folks. This happened in my neck of the woods just two days ago when an African-American man jumped out of a car and shot three uh, Asian-American workers, right? Same kind of thing has happened in places like New York City. Now, again, to be clear, this is the tiny majority of these 11,000 cases, but they do happen. And what are the performances that play out when they happen? Well, Asian-Americans simply don't know what to say. Because if we say we name something, we feel like we're betraying something or someone. And so we just sit back and we're just quiet about it. And there's no room to be honest about how we feel about this experience. And without giving voice to what's happening, then we seem to cede the ground to whatever narratives that will describe that, including the white nationalist, white supremacist ones, or the ones about carceral states, or the ones that would seek to imprison or lean into an unjust justice system. We need to have thicker and more honest conversations that names complicity wherever complicity plays out. But I fear that the scripts, right, that Sexton seems to articulate and give voice and justification for makes it the case that Asian Americans are not just marginalized and put to the side, but inevitably and persistently marginalized and put to the side that somehow we don't count. I feel like I see this every single time, not like sometimes, every single time when universities talk about diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, right? DEI initiatives. I have all kinds of critiques from a racial capitalist political economy critique of that world. But just interpersonally, just in terms of my experience of it, it's the, it's the experience of sitting in a room and people talking about equity, like I'm not even there. like. The fact that I make up a tiny percentage of my university does not matter at all. And not something that I don't matter, that where I matter, I matter suspiciously. Like there's just too many of me in the room when clearly that isn't the case. Am I allowed to talk about that? If I say that, am I taking something away from my Latinx brothers and sisters, from Latinx communities and histories? That's the performance I feel like I'm stuck in. And I maybe like I'm just exhausted by this reality, right? Just like our brothers and sisters across many communities are exhausted, right? Exhausted by these rhetorics and these performances that we have been scripted into by a racial capitalist economy that says this is where you belong. This is what you have to say over and over again. As I thought about this talk this morning, I don't know what to say about this. Because there is part of me that wants to say, and I'm not saying, I'm not just posturing here. There is part of me that genuinely believes that there is a room for silence and sitting and listening, no matter how much what is said 
puts me to the side. That in coming to America, we step onto a land soaked in blood, the blood of Latinx communities, the blood of black brothers and sisters, the, the blood of indigenous peoples, the blood of the oppressed whites, the blood of the ongoing oppression and uh, patriarchy against women, that we step into that world. And to step into that world and to assert that we have to be heard and represented right away, that there's just something again that fails the eye test of moral life in that regard. So there is a part of me that believes there's something right about this performance, that when we perform it, there is a way in which the performance is both virtuous and can be performed virtuously. And if you wanna see models of that, just look at all my colleagues' presentations so far. Maybe to see an unvirtuous performance of it is to think about this very talk I'm giving right now, right? But there is this sense in which maybe the theology is one of sitting back and what solidarity does name is the allowance to sit to the side, to dispossess, to lean into the promise of joy that comes with dispossession that Jesus promises of the dispossessed. But what I wanna ask is there, is there anything more? So let's say we acknowledge the centrality, the virtue of that performance and how it can be performed virtuously. But is there more? And I don't know the answer to this question. I know I feel exhausted and I know a lot of y'all feel exhausted on all kinds of sides of these conversations. I know we all feel the need to perform these scripts and the exhaustion, the way that the performances have begun to caricature themselves. But how do we move forward? As we try to figure out that question, I want to say that that's where the theology of waiting needs to come into place. That waiting is both an expectation of things to come where you're not simply passive, right? I'm not talking about something passive. You're just sitting back and not doing anything but it is a faithful waiting, an active waiting. The description of waiting in scripture is often portrayed, as we know, in the language of covenant, specifically the covenant of Israel. Remember that what God promises and calls Israel to is the promise of land and children and human flourishing and the flourishing of all creation through the living out of God's law. But the nature of the covenant is that the realization of those things will not come nearly as quickly as we want. And so we wait. Our wait is action filled in prayer and revolution and acts of liberation and solidarity, of finding right struggle, of pushing for good things. But it is a waiting nonetheless. It's also the case that with Israel, Israel faced along the way as it waited for the promise of the covenant to be fulfilled, it faced along the way constant temptation to reject God's long-term covenantal promise of fulfillment, to settle for lesser things, to, to settle into lands that were not their own. Augustine powerfully articulates this in the city of God, that the city of God is... God's pilgrim people in the world where the temptation is to erect permanent cities where at best we could be incarnational people who pray for the good and work for the good of the city, but always remind ourselves that we are on the way in say that that's what Christians are. I want to say that as an Asian American, the temptation I feel most 
and maybe I'm alone in this, but the temptation I feel most in a discourse and set of performances that persistently puts me to the side is I feel tempted towards a racial nationalism. In my book, I describe racial nationalism in terms that are delimiting of political possibilities because it names the lines, right, of belonging and political action around narrow con categories and constructs of race. I feel like at this moment in the face of the, the onslaught of anti-Asian American violence and the rhetorical absence of the ability to even name and talk about that in our national discourse tempts me in moments like this conference towards greater forms of racial nationalism, the very thing I try to critique in the book. And it will be a racial nationalism, right, that is not chastened by the way race nationalism was chastened within the black intellectual tradition, where there was a question about what nationalism and what blackness amounted to. My worry is that for Asian Americans, we won't even have that conversation. There will be no distinction between forms of living into race that are beneficial and those that are harmful, that we won't have behind us the intellectual tradition, that in this moment, we will simply be triggered to pull the scripts around us of race nationalism and to lean into Asian Americanness, whatever that means. That's the temptation I feel, right? And so if a covenantal life is being called in a certain kind of way, but being persistently, feeling persistently like you're tempted away from that way, then one of the temptations I would name, at least in terms of how I've experienced, are these forms of nationalism that will further the divisions between me and other people. It won't be the right kind of particularism that names the particular forms of racialization and oppression. It will rather be a balkanized nationalism that keeps me divided and conquered. I wanna ask in the theology of waiting, how can we push past that? How can, the, how can we push back past that? How can the theology of revolution and the theology of waiting be intertwined threads in a single theology of God in this world, where we push towards revolution, but we learn how to wait? That is the question. I don't have an answer for that. It's simply my way of trying to name just how difficult it seems to be. Thanks for your time. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.